This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Knowledge at Wharton on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. A little old school baseball music for you. Baseball really has always been a game of numbers, whether it be batting averages or the 6-4-3 double play and more. But the game really has taken a big shift in recent years with the addition of roto statistics and now soaring because of interest due to fantasy baseball. And now things like wins above replacement, win probability added, and others have become a very important piece to the game, not just for the fans, but for the teams themselves. ESPN's Keith Law writes about a lot of the changes going on in his new book, Smart Baseball, the story behind the old stats that are ruining the game, the new ones that are running it, and the right way to think about baseball. And Keith joins us on the phone right now. Keith, welcome. Thank you. Uh, I am old school, but I am trying to come over to the new world as as it is in baseball. So for, for fans that are really trying to wrap their hands around it, why are these statistics, the new ones, so important to the game? Well, for two reasons. One is that they tell a much more accurate picture of uh, player performance, whether we're talking about uh, evaluating past performance or the main job for a lot of front offices is projecting future performance. They strip out the context that spoiled a lot of the numbers that I think a lot of us, myself included, grew up with. Why can't we use RBIs and pitcher wins and saves and fielding percentage? Well, they just don't give a very accurate picture. They include a lot of noise from the contributions uh, of other players, or they leave out a lot of particularly salient information about each player's performance. Also, the second reason is that clubs for most of baseball's history had to rely on scouting reports, which are inherently subjective, for, to inform their decision-making. And right. these, this kind of data provides an objective counterpoint to that where you know, most clubs are integrating information from both sources, but it's obviously nice and uh, beneficial to have a much more objective, longer-term uh, source of information that includes everything. It's not just the five games you're a pro scout was sitting there watching the Reading Phillies. Instead, it's the entire season encapsulated in one line of data or a game log or a split that, that gives you everything you your scout saw and everything that he wasn't able to see. And, of course, when you're talking about a, a, an industry right now where the contracts continue to get bigger and bigger and the investment is more and more, uh, the, the the understanding of each player and, as you said, what they have done and what they could potentially do in the future, that just that expands even more. Yes, the cost of a mistake has gone up dramatically throughout baseball. You know, I'm uh, knee-deep in draft stuff right now. Our draft is five weeks from today. And the cost of a blown draft pick in the first round especially, you've probably – put anywhere from 2 to $7 million into the player himself in the signing bonus. Yeah. But you've also missed on, you know, if you take the wrong player, the right player goes a little bit behind you. You ask the teams who passed on Mike Trout, the teams who passed on Andrew Benintendi, who won the Golden Spikes Award. His college statistics were fantastic, and he was still only the eighth pick in the draft, which on draft day didn't seem unreasonable, but today certainly does. Well, and I remember from my time working in the minor leagues, uh, you know, when Roger Clemens got traded, uh, the Red Sox got compensation uh, in terms of a couple of draft picks uh, high in the draft uh, several years ago. 
And both of the players that they got in that, I, I, I knew, and they both neither made it out of AAA, and so, or I should say AA. And so when you are when you're at that level and you get that compensation, you have to be right on it. And when you don't, it just is magnified, you know, 10, 20, 30-fold. Yes, and the flip side is if you're successful on several straight uh, first-round picks, because really the, the way baseball baseball's draft is 40 rounds. Yeah. But the bulk of the, of the high-end talent comes from the first round. There are exceptions, but you know, half or more of your high-value players are going to come from the first round or the first 30 or 40 picks, say. If you hit on a few of those in a row, like say the way the Cubs have in the last five or six years, then it can really accelerate a rebuilding process for you. And, and it provides talent either for your major league club or players that you can then turn around and trade like they did uh, to acquire Roldis Chapman last summer. Eventually what you're going to see, and you probably are already seeing it now, and we're talking with Keith Law, uh, who is uh, the author of the book Smart Baseball, is that the contracts that these players sign, maybe not necessarily in their first round of contracts, but when they are becoming more established players, uh, are we starting to see that some of, of these new data points are being included in these contracts as as uh, as bonus clauses? No, because that's not legal under okay. baseball's collective bargaining agreement. Any statistics that can be used for in what we call incentive clauses are those that count playing time, so simply okay. innings pitched, games started, games finished, etc. However, it does certainly inform. Uh, decision making on when player when teams are looking at free agents, how much to offer those players, and in the arbitration process, which is players who don't have enough uh, service time in the major leagues to get to free agency, then either side, when presenting to the arbitration panel, can use whatever statistics they want. And my understanding is that in recent years, you've started to see some more of these advanced statistics. Although, of course, in that case, it's less about uh, getting at the truth than about making the case that the salary you want to pay the player or you want the player to receive is the correct answer. I think for a lot of people, the fact that so many teams now have an analytics department uh, is something that I think for many baseball fans still is is a little bit of a surprise. The Phillies have really invested here in Philadelphia in the last few years. And, of course, Oakland really kind of got it started. And obviously a lot of people saw it in the movie Moneyball. Uh, so, I mean, this is, a, this is a shift that is here to stay. And more and more of the teams are going to invest more and more of this type of data and, and understanding. All 30 teams now have full-time analytics departments. Uh, by my estimate, there's over 200 analysts working in those departments across all of baseball. So you know, people have asked me on other uh, media appearances I've done, what, what do you think about this revolution? I say the revolution's over. Everyone's accepted that this is a, a necessary part of doing business in baseball. Now the debates are over what specific metrics we might be using or teams working with this new stream of stat cast data that comes from Major League Baseball, which is simply bigger, yeah. more detailed, more granular than anything we've had to work with before. So they're still chasing advantages, looking for hidden efficiencies or inefficiencies, I should say, in the marketplace. But it's very different than 10, 15 years ago when Moneyball, especially, which I do recommend very highly to folks who have, was about the A's knowing that they were competing with a huge financial disadvantage and yep. looking for these hidden inefficiencies so that they could simply be more competitive uh, when going up against teams with much larger payrolls, for example. That's done. I, do, I think that era has ended, and now the inefficiencies they're looking for are smaller and probably more fleeting, but they're still looking for them because they know they're out there, and they know that they can't 
front offices know they cannot operate in this environment unless they understand what every other team is doing, too. And to do that, you need an analytics presence. But is there still a little bit of a divide between the understanding and the use of analytics in the in the front office with the general manager and the and the analytics people and down on the field with the manager and, and those people because uh, and you talk a little bit about it is the fact that there are situations where if you look at the data there are players being mismanaged in how they are used on the field but it it's still to a degree the old school feel that the manager and the coaches have compared to the data points that are available to them yes it's tr- it's definitely true it varies quite a bit from team to team from manager to manager you've got guys like mike sosha who's been managing forever for the uh, angels and is really re- reluctant to use a lot of the advanced data that's coming from the front office and then you have guys like Terry Francona and Joe Madden who absolutely demand this information. And you saw in the way that they managed their teams to the World Series last year, they were doing some unusual things. They were, the Cubs are particularly adept at defensive positioning. They posted some of the best team defensive numbers we've seen in the last 50 years because they were using advanced data to figure out where to position players on a batter-by-batter basis. And you saw Terry Francona managing his bullpen, not according to the save rule, which I certainly trash i think appropriately in the first section of smart yeah, baseball yeah but bringing bringing andrew miller his best reliever into games as early as the fifth inning because he recognized those were the inflection points that's where we might lose this game or keep it close and give ourselves the best chance to win that's it is modern thinking and yet at the same time it's old thinking because it's how managers would manage prior to the invention of the save statistic so analytics has brought some new ideas, but it's also brought back some old ideas that at one point seemed out of date. You're also a believer on the importance of on-base percentage uh, in baseball? Yes. I think of all the basic stats, anything you might have seen on a baseball card 20 or 30 years ago, it's the most important. It's also very accessible. Everyone understands what it is, what it means. You can calculate it simply yourself if you want to. And so whenever I tell fans they're asking, what's the best single number to look at for a player? So it's not necessarily one single number. If you're looking to start somewhere for a hitter, look at his on-base percentage because it's the most fundamental measure of his basic job, which is to not make outs. The the war statistic is one that I'm, again, I'm still trying to truly understand it. So take me through it and, and, and how this has become a very important statistic in in understanding the success that a player can bring to a team. I explain it in the book by saying it's rather than being a single stat, like on-base percentage, there's one formula, there's one way to calculate OBP, and and that's, that's the end of it. War, wins above replacement, is more of a construct. It's the idea that you're going to take everything a player does on the field, calculate values for each of those things. So for, for a hitter, it's his batting, his base running, and his fielding and compare it to a certain baseline replacement level, but you could use average too. Teams tend to use replacement level for that particular position. And then the sum of all those numbers gives you some total. You can do it in runs. You can convert it to wins. And that's a single number that tries to represent the player's total value over, say, a full season or even over a full career. When I asked, I interviewed a lot of executives while writing Smart Baseball. When I asked them, how do you value a player in total? Every answer I got was some variation on that wins above replacement concept. Of course, they all do it differently. Everyone has their own way to measure defense, especially. 
But they all said, we're comparing to replacement level, we're adding up everything that a player's worth, and we're trying to come up with one number. So often it's just a matter of figuring out what to pay him. You want to sign Jason Hayward to a contract, well, you have to figure out how much his glove was worth, his legs, and his bat, and add all of those up so you can come up with a reasonable dollar value that's going to match the value he provides to you on the field. So if if on-base percentage does provide a, a more... Uh, a, a more sh- really straightforward viewpoint of, of a, a player's worth. Where do you stand on the statistic uh, that includes both on-base percentage and slugging percentage? Because that brings you a little bit of a different flavor. Uh, I assume you're referring to OPS, yeah. where you just add the two together. Yep. Personally, I dislike it uh, because, one, it just offends me as a sort of math guy that you're adding two fractions with different denominators. And I was told in fourth grade or third grade that you're not supposed to do that. But (laughs) also, you do end up with a more fundamental problem, which is that you're adding two ratios there with entirely different scales. And so OPS tends to overweight slugging percentage, which tends to have a broader scale and higher numbers at the high end, when the more important measure of the hitter is whether he gets on base, not whether he gets extra bases. On base percentage should actually be weighted much higher. And there are other statistics like weighted on base average, which I describe in the book, that do that. It's a more complex calculation, but they give you a more accurate result. However, I do say in the section where I talk about OPS that at a team level, OPS does predict team run scoring really well. And it's almost unfortunate because, like I said, it bothers me from a philosophical level. But I have to acknowledge, if you're looking at Team OPS, that's a pretty good way to estimate what kind of run-scoring team they're going to be. Keith Law joining us. He is the author of the book Smart Baseball, the story behind the old stats that are ruining ruining the game, the new ones that are running it, and the right way to think about baseball. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get to your phone, you can send us a comment on Twitter, and we will bring it up at, at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Uh, so... Where are we going to be headed with with the game, with all of these statistics moving forward? I, I mean, obviously, as you said, we've already had that that kind of that monumental shift to include these even further. I, I mean, the importance of them and the shift going forward is going to be what? The last two chapters of the book, I, I try to start to answer those questions, although obviously it's it's just opinion, and and I leaned on some individuals in the game to ask them. Where do you think we're going in the future? I talk a lot about that StatCast product from Major League Baseball, which is certainly changing the work that analytics departments are doing and giving us new detail on players that we never had before. But there are also new applications that are coming. A few executives mentioned possibly using that information for injury prevention, that we now have objective measurements of, say, not just velocity, but a pitcher's spin rate on all of his individual pitches. And there was an example last year where the Padres sent down a reliever to get him some rest, essentially, because they noticed that his spin rates on his pitches uh, were all declining. And they said, this is probably a sign of fatigue, a precursor to injury. What if teams could prevent even one disabled list stint per season for its pitchers? That's probably a million dollars in savings right there, just by looking in the data for early signs of fatigue before, say, a pitcher tears a ligament and then ends up having to have surgery. So that's an application that was unthinkable three years ago before the StatCast data was available. And now uh, teams are looking for for things to do with this data that it, this data set makes possible a lot of applications that uh, even in the previous era where we had pretty detailed pitch data 
but nothing like what the StackCast system provides, uh, a lot of new applications are possible and uh, could go into entirely new areas like injury prevention or, or uh, improvements in player development. Which is interesting considering right now this season, which has gotten underway, the 2017 season, there are seemingly, and it feels like there are more big-name players, more players in general hurt this year than I can remember in an April and the start to May in many, many years. We've got a rash of uh, oblique and lat muscle injuries for reasons. I, I don't know if it's anything more than a statistical fluke, but we, we have quite a few of them right now. It's also true that Major League Baseball, the new CBA, changed the uh, disabled list from 15-day to 10-day. Yeah. It's a 10-day minimum now. And I believe it was Fangraphs had some data showing the teams are actually using that disabled list much more often, too. It is a way to manipulate your way around the 25-man roster limit. So you can put a player on there. A pitcher goes on there. He's essentially just skipping one start. But you get him off the roster and get to call someone else up from AAA. So I have a feeling it's a combination of both. We are truly seeing more injuries. We're also seeing a lot more guys on the disabled list for what we might call questionable injury reasons. This shift of statistics and data, and how much of this is really being implemented on down the line from the major leagues into the minors? And obviously, to a degree, I think it is because not only do these teams want to be able to project how well their major leaguers will do, they want to know what X player that's playing at double A right now is doing and potentially can forecast what he could be doing you know, in terms of bringing him up to the major leagues. Yes, so that's been a huge effort, a huge uh, endeavor for analytics departments for a while now. The StatCast data, again, gives them a lot more detail. Uh, Teams are, uh, at their own expense, installing much of the equipment required to collect StatCast data in their own minor league affiliates ballparks uh, so they, they can collect data on their own players and also on all of the visiting players who would come through over the course of the season. I had executives tell me that they're trying to use some of that data as well to improve the development of players, to be able to identify certain players who uh, maybe have an underutilized skill. The Mets have a pitcher who's hurt now, unfortunately, named Seth Lugo, who's got an exceptionally high spin rate on his curveball, but he rarely throws it. Well, that's a, a good example, though, of identifying a pitch that might be really effective if the pitcher simply chose to throw it more. You could also use this kind of data to identify uh, maybe you identify Seth Lugo and say, well, he's got a very high spin rate curveball. We have these other five pitchers who have fairly low spin rate curveballs. And look physically at what it will rate. What are they doing differently? Is Lugo's grip different? His release point is that different? Uh, some of which is in the StatCast data. So that you could actually work with coaches who are now kind of expected to be at least literate in this information and say, all right, can we apply the lessons from one pitcher to try to improve the development of some of the others. I'm going to guess that this is going to continue all the way, not only past the minor leagues, but into high school and and travel teams. And all of this data, I would think a lot of those organizations are going to be doing because that can benefit the individual for the positive of whether or not they would be going on to college on a scholarship or whether they would be able to be expected to be, as you're preparing for the draft, be a high draft pick as well. It's access to the technology. That's the gating factor here in that it can cost, my understanding is about hundred grand to install all of that equipment yeah. uh, in a stadium. What major league teams are doing, though, when there are certain high school events, say, played in major league stadiums, there's one at Wrigley every summer, there's one at Petco every summer. I go to a few of these to scout players myself. Those teams have the option to just flip the system on and gather all of that data. So if you're the Cubs and you host the Under Armour All-American game, which has some of the best high school prospects 
all mostly rising seniors for the following year's draft. You can flip the system on and collect all the velocities, all the spin rates, all the exit velocities, the ball off of each hitter's bat. Uh, all of that information then goes into your draft process for the following year. And there's yeah. multiple events like that. I just picked one. So you can actually get a nice little sample of hard data on high school players where when I worked for the Blue Jays, we didn't bother with high school data because every, all high school hitters who are any good, they're all hitting 600. They're sure. all, their, yeah. their performances are great. They're not facing good pitching. Well, now the stack cast data is a bit more objective. It takes some of the uh, irrelevance of bad high school pitching or bad high school competition out of the equation. And they could turn around, teams could turn around and choose to share that with players, with travel coaches, with whoever they'd like to try to maybe identify different talents to take later in the draft or, or maybe decide who to avoid. Oh, this guy, you know, his velocity is good. Spin rate's low. Maybe we don't want to take him in the first round after all. You also uh, talk uh, about this in in somewhat of a historical perspective as well, kind of looking back at you know things that could have been different in the history of baseball. Uh, you talk about the '87 MVP race with uh, Andre Dawson of the Cubs having won that award, but but in your opinion, probably should not have. Yeah, it was actually was not even in the top ten in players in the National League, but at the time. I, I was 14 that season, so I remember yeah. it clearly. At yeah. the time, the lens through which uh, everyone, media teams, fans, evaluated position players was the old troika of batting average home runs and RBIs. And Dawson had a reasonable batting average. He led the NL in home runs. I believe he also led in RBIs. He also had the nice narrative of he basically got stuck via collusion. He was robbed of quite a bit of, of potential earnings because owners had colluded not to sign free agents. So he, there was, I think, a little bit of a sentimental push, too. And he won the MVP. When Tony Gwynn was, without question, a better player offense. But he did a lot of other things, much better than Dawson did, including getting on base. But at the time, Gwynn's greatness was not recognized the way that it is through the more modern lenses that I describe in the book that look at a player's total contributions as opposed to essentially just cherry-picking those three specific numbers that were so in vogue back in the 80s. 844-942-7866 is the number. You also talk about this in, in the scope of the Hall of Fame as well, correct? Yes, and I tried to highlight a few players who uh, aren't in but belong in. I mentioned Lou Whitaker, who's the, you know sort of a favorite of mine back from the 80s as well, and who fell off the ballot after just one year. He got virtually no consideration from the Baseball Writers Association, despite being one of the 10 best second basemen in the history of baseball. Right. I also talk about Mike Mussina, who's still on the ballot. I figured, let me talk about one who might actually be able to make a difference here and argue that Mussina, when viewed in the context, especially of the era in which he played, a very high offense era, uh, absolutely is clears the bar, the historical bar set by other pitchers who've been put into the Hall of Fame and argue that Mussina, who I do think will get in eventually, deserves greater consideration than he's gotten so far. Uh, then that being said, taking uh, one uh, one player who uh, played here in Philadelphia for a while and is obviously a, a topic of conversation for the Hall of Fame, uh, when the statistics really are, are borne out, is Kurt Schilling a Hall of Famer? On the merit of what he did on the field, yes, I would argue that he would. He, he would belong. I left him out of the book because there are some very clear non-baseball reasons that will likely hurt his candidacy. But if we're strictly talking about between the lines, then yes, I would would support Schilling and I would 
would vote for him. I don't have a vote yet for another 18 months, but I would I consider him to have cleared the bar on his performance. But it, going back to the Andre Dawson, Tony Gwynn thing for a second, I mean, it, to a degree, the conversation has been there for a long time about what exactly most valuable means, whether it's most mm-hmm. valuable to that particular person's team or the best player in that particular league that did the most to make his team a successful team. Like this is this is a philosophical debate that, as you said, has been going on forever. Uh, whether you can a player truly be most valuable if his team was not good or if yeah. his team did not make the playoffs, I personally find that ridiculous. I think value is value. If you're, it doesn't matter if your team stinks, that's not your fault. Dawson won the MVP award on a last place team, and I have found that the voters historically have been maddeningly inconsistent about applying that rule. Yeah. Basically, they say it matters when they want it to matter. Right. It happened a few years ago with the Miguel Cabrera, Mike Trout debates where you saw voters switching allegiance essentially to Cabrera and saying, uh, well, you know, Trout wasn't on an MVP, wasn't on a, a winning team, so he can't be the MVP when that when they had said quite the opposite a few years before. And to me, uh, you know, I think our jobs, whether we're voting or writing, you know, some modicum of intellectual consistency is probably a good thing. And, uh, and again, sticking to objective data allows us to do that. We can at the end, you can simply point to the numbers and say, look, I'm just following the same process I always do uh, without the subjectivity that can come into it when you start saying, well, was the team good enough for him to be considered an MVP candidate? Keith, greatly appreciate your time today. Uh, enjoy your uh, your work and uh, all the best with your coverage of the draft. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Keith Law from uh, ESPN. The uh, book is titled Smart Baseball, the story behind the old stats that are ruining the game, the new ones that are running it, and the right way to think about baseball. A couple of people uh, tweeted in about uh, the comment that, uh, that Keith made about uh, looking for potential failure because of spin rate on a pitcher's pitches. That's that's a very insightful comment. All right, that will take care of our show for the day. We will be back with you tomorrow, 10 a.m. East, here on Sirius XM 111. Many thanks to Patty McMahon, Monique Nazareth, Daniel Bruno. Enjoy the rest of your Monday. Talk to you tomorrow. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.